Hi, Tejal. Hi. My name is pronounced Tejal. Tejal. It's the soft T-H sound. Soft Tejal. Tejal? No, it's more Tejal. Tejal. Just Tejal. Tejal. Yeah. Tejal. Yeah. How do you spell it? T-E-J-A-L. So it's spelled wrong. No. It's like really Tejal. It's not spelled. Or Tejal. No, it's Tejal. Hello, everyone. I'm Thajal. And I'm Jaisal. And this is Yoga is Dead. We're two Indian American yoga teachers navigating the weird and tricky world of yoga. Get ready to hear our personal stories, thoughts, and research on who killed yoga. Grab some chai, a tall, comfortable seat, and let's go. So, white women killed yoga. That's our episode today. Yep, that's right. Yoga six feet under because white women killed yoga. Now, 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 before we get into it, disclaimer, we want to acknowledge that this topic is going to be difficult for a lot of you listening. If you're white, you might hear a stereotype and think, well, that's not all of us. And while that might be true, it's the same as saying, not all men. In our experience, white people, especially white women, don't respond well to being generalized or stereotyped. So if this makes you upset, angry, or defensive, we suggest you sit with those feelings and reflect on why your feelings are more valid than ours and why it's okay to stereotype others, but not white people. So let's get into it. Dejal, why are we talking about white women? We met at a studio that was managed by basically the profile that we're going to be talking about today, a white woman who couldn't let go of power and was trying to manage everything and not allowing us to really have any say in what we were doing at all. Right. So this white woman was your typical thin, able-bodied, blonde white woman, and she owned and ran a studio. I think at the time of this release, it no longer exists. But when we met several years back, we were both there for a training. Yeah, which we kind of got catfished into, <laughs> if you recall correctly. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is that actually, Thaisa and I were both there to interview for jobs. And it ended up being a situation where they told us we more or less had to take their training in order to get the job. Um, And needless to say that at the end of that training, the job was not guaranteed. So we ended up going to that event, which, like you just said, was kind of an interview, but really trying to get us to filter into their anatomy training. And we ended up doing the anatomy training. And we actually connected over our disappointment during that training right at the start. Right at the start. So I think day one, they asked us, what's the difference between Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga? And for some context out there, I did my training in India on Raja Yoga. And I, you know, I'm an Indian American woman, deeply connected to yoga and to my heritage. And when asked this question, I answered right away, like, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the, the most common one that everybody has, has only six limbs. Raja Yoga is eight limbs. Hatha Yoga is body focused. Raja Yoga is more about morals, discipline, lifestyle. And when I said that, the owner of the studio totally shut me down, told me I was wrong, and then was like, oh, well, I'm going to look it up. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, so am I. The next day she comes back, starts off the day with, so I looked it up and you're wrong. And in my mind, I'm like, on what planet? Because you have the same copy of this book that I have. So that was a disappointment. I think what was really challenging about that conversation was, 
first of all, hearing a yoga teacher or someone who was looking to be a mentor to students give a student a big fat no. So what I've learned is that throughout trainings and throughout your education in yoga, it's typically yes and here's another point of view or another way to look at things. And it was the same for this conversation. You can do a quick Google search on this exact question and you can find different opinions on whether Hatha Yoga is six or eight limbs. And who's to say what's exactly right? We're talking about a practice so ancient, it predates written word. You're right, Hatha Yoga is so old, the, the definition of Hatha Yoga is so varied amongst the different schools of yoga. And so, and the limbs are completely different from one practice to another. So at the end of the day, to insist that you're right about something when somebody from that ethnic background is telling you it might be different is kind of jarring. <laughs> It was it was totally crazy. Here I am watching another Indian American yoga teacher defend her point of view and having studied in India and being told by two white women who not that different in age, education or or uh, training telling you, no, you're wrong. And don't even think about that as we go forward. There's only one way. And so you might think, oh, you're blowing one thing out of proportion. But I we're going to tell you another story because a few days later, I had a situation and Jason was sitting there watching me go through this situation. We were talking, just talking about asana, asan, if you might say it that way. And I think I said the word utkatasan instead of utkatasana, which chair pose, awkward, fierce pose. And what the F? They told me that I was saying the word wrong. Okay, so they're telling an Indian American who studied her yoga in India that she's saying it wrong. Now, for all of you out there, this is utkatasan is a normal way of saying it. Saying any of these asan words without with by dropping the last a is a common thing. It's like a contraction of the word. Um, and this woman is telling Thajal that actually it's not the correct pronunciation and. What you're saying is a dialect, not the proper way of saying it, which is completely ridiculous because. So we so we think it's similar to saying transverse abdominals as opposed to transversus abdominis. No one's going to tell you the Latin is incorrect when you're using it. And no one's going to say the English is incorrect if you're not using the Latin. Right. The common way of saying it for most people is transverse abdominals because that's English. So if you're saying Utkatasan, that's like the normal language that people speak as opposed to Sanskrit. So it's kind of crazy that some white woman is telling two Indian people, because I remember backing you up on this stage. She told two Indian people that they're saying the word wrong. Meanwhile, this person studied under a white person and is white herself and has no connection to India whatsoever. Those two scenarios happened so early on. I think you had said day one, and then I think mine had happened very early on, maybe week one or week two. And from that moment, when we walked out of the studio, we would chat, have some conversation, light conversation. But after that point, I think you and I really started to talk about how we felt about those things and not just the content of the anatomy training, but all these different microaggressions that we felt right at the start and how we felt powerless because we were invested in getting this training. We thought that it was the right thing, next thing to be doing to work at a studio or gain more knowledge. And, you know, we had to 
we had to weigh the risk versus reward here. Do we risk being in this training and, and telling these people who really fragilely hold all this power that they're wrong, risk ruining the relationship with them in, in, in terms of trying to like do the right thing. And it was really challenging as a, as a teacher entering a training and not really nav knowing how to navigate a space like that. And being, for me, it was my first year trying to teach full time. So still feeling a little bit green in that regard. It was just really challenging, but I will say it was super amazing to be able to talk to you about that. Yeah, it was super challenging. And again, in part because this was supposed to be like a prolonged job interview. So you felt like if I don't stay in my lane, I'm not going to get the job. And we're told over and over again how hard it is to get paid in the yoga industry. Yeah, I, I actually would love to hear from you. I think we both would love to hear from you guys about experiences that resonate similarly in this way where you just felt powerless even though you had education and background and knowledge to offer in the situation how many times did you feel stripped of the right to express your opinion because you were worried about rocking the boat yeah exactly and I think that was sort of the bonding moment that we had is talking about this one particular person and it's sort of like I think the genesis of this podcast but since that time, I think we've both found an increasing number of challenging personalities with white women, especially white women in some sort of leadership position. Um, we, I think in general, and just again, to generalize, we found these women to be impenetrable to feedback. We found them extremely defensive at the slightest su suggestion or difference in opinion. We found them exhibiting extreme food obsession and unable to contain their hangups about body image. Um, I find many of them to be hyper competitive with other women and their culture conditioned to tear each other down rather than support the community as a whole, which if you look at other communities of yoga teachers out there that are not white, you'll see we're like really supportive of each other. We're not here to tear each other down and compete, um, which is not something you usually find with white women in general. Let's try and understand this uh, white woman phenomena outside of the yoga world in a broader sense. Remember the 2016 elections and the clusterfuck that was? So some people weren't surprised at the election results, but people I know and I me, yeah, and you were just dumbfounded that exit polls showed 52% of white women voted for Trump. Granted, the majority of white women do vote Republican, but Trump, ladies, like, I'm really? still reeling. I researched more about why white women did end up voting for Trump, sadly. And lucky for me, Jackie Payne is also trying to understand this question. And she's a white woman with an impressive resume of advocacy and activism work. So I'm going to quote her here. She categorizes white women voters into three groups. Beacons, group one, those who are clear in their beliefs, talk about it, share their opinions freely, and whom people come to for advice. Peacemakers, second group, clear in their beliefs, yet don't talk about them openly in an effort to keep the peace. And the more nebulous questioning group, group three, a little harder to pin down in your social circles, those who see politics as divisive and traditionally outsource their opinions to others. Although they may be waking up to the current climate, they're still not ready to join the peacemakers group one or beacons group two. And I was thinking about this, and I see this as a direct comparison to why white women killed yoga and white women studio owners who are ready to see yoga 
as more than just a way to feel good in their individual body. The Beacon studio owners are those women, those who offer open-level classes that embody philosophy and not just physicality, that don't whitewash the practice, that invite diversity and activism-related work to be highlighted alongside asana practice, creating more union and more connection to what's relevant and important, whether it's deemed political or not. And then you have the Peacemaker studio owners who are activists in their own right, but might not bring non-asana-focused programming into their studio space so as not to upset or disturb clients. And then you have what might even be the most problematic group, the questioning studio owners, more than happy to follow the status quo, ignore diversity, equity, and inclusivity, and allow others to do the heavy lifting so they can focus on selling clothes, selling aromatherapy, and selling teacher training. So this all boils down to one question for me. Shouldn't all studios run by white people who want to practice real yoga be run by beacons? And when it comes to talking about or ignoring politics these days, I like to quote one of my favorite authors, Arundhati Roy. The moment a breath enters the body, it becomes political. That's a really great quote, Thajal. And I love it more so because I think a lot of times when you interact with especially white people, there's this idea that you can somehow erase the environment in which we live and encapsulate yoga. It's this thing on its own and it lives and breathes on its own. But in fact, you can't actually do yoga or live yoga without the context of the world around you. And the world around us is more political than ever. But going back to the examples that you gave about those three groups, I think it's interesting because the questioning group seems like the obvious bad, big bad almost. But the other group, the peacemaker group, is like this insidious problem, right? They're like hidden in plain sight. And yeah, I would go so far as to say this group are the group of people that are the monsters lurking under the yoga mat. Exactly, because you can't actually point them out easily and say, like, look, you're a problem. But I read this article by Rachel Elizabeth Cargill called When Feminism is White Supremacy in Heels. And I think everybody in the yoga world needs to read this article. She was primarily writing about white women's reaction to black women's voices when it comes to feminism. But honestly, I resonated with it so much because I thought, oh, my God, this is exactly what we as Indian American women in the yoga industry experience. And in it, she describes the super liberal women who claim to be all about social social justice and equality and intersectional feminism. And yet, when you and I, Thajal, bring up things or when our friends, we've also heard from many of our friends who are either black or Indian or other women of color, bring up issues that make them feel uncomfortable, they deflect by telling us how we should be giving the feedback or demanding unity. So you hear this all the time, like, oh, but we're just a positive space. We're all about love and light or demanding we are all one. You hear that all the time. And it's just another way of saying, shut up and maintain the status quo. And or they make the conversation all about their guilt. Oh, my God, I know I'm a white woman with privilege. I don't know what to do. And they like break down and cry. And then now you find yourself, you know, comforting them rather than addressing the issue that made women of color or people of color uncomfortable to begin with. Yeah, there are words for those things. White fragility, white guilt, white tears. Yeah. And you see this over and over and over again on social media. So it's like immediately just check out any post of dissent against the status quo on social media. You can check out our social media um, and others. 
And you'll see like white women who claim to be all super liberal, either speaking for a group without inviting them into the conversation or a person can put up a post uh, saying a criticism of the yoga world. And then a white person will comment and say, well, that's not valid because not all of us. Oh, and the should. Don't drop your shoulds on me. I don't need you telling me what I should or should not be doing. So essentially, we're talking about a couple different buckets, maybe even more than a couple. We're talking about white women's yoga studio owners. We're talking about the impact on social media and silencing. What we want to say about the white women yoga studio owners is that quit working with that scarcity mentality rather than a mindset of abundance. Okay, And stop refusing to change your business practice so we can make yoga more accessible and diverse and inclusive to all communities. Putting your money where your mouth is. And we have some tips on how to be a better ally at the end of this episode. So make sure you stay tuned to the end. But going back to that social media thing, actually, we both listened to this podcast um, by Yoga Girl, aka Rachel Brathen. Is that how you say her name? Rachel Brathen? Let's just say B. Rachel B. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, we're sorry if we said your name wrong. Um, But the episode she did was on cultural appropriation, and she had invited guest speaker Susanna Barkataki. And it was actually very interesting because she had one of those moments where she posted something that was, you know, insensitive to the Indian yoga community. And her reaction was also initially defense, self-defense, which I get it. A lot of people feel defensive when they are put on the spot. And she has this whole conversation with Susanna where in the end, basically, she realizes that if I can just do one small thing to not hurt a whole group of people, like, isn't that small sacrifice worth it? It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to not wear a bindi. Yeah, the the article or the podcast was super interesting because she did get to tell her story and defend her position, which you do need to hear the background in order to understand why someone would do a thing anyway. It boiled down to emotional attachment. Rachel was talking about the emotional attachment she had to wearing a bindi when she was younger and why she felt like that was a nod back to her friend when they used to do it when they were younger. That doesn't make it right when you are younger. It doesn't give you an excuse to continue to behave that way. And she recognized that in the conversation with Susanna and recognizing that is great. Then I heard a later podcast with her and Deepak Chopra. Oh God, Deepak Chopra. The Dr. Oz of yoga. (laughs) And in this conversation, you could hear Rachel talk about cultural appropriation with a sense of relief and a sense of letting go of responsibility because Deepak Chopra, an Indian man, came on that podcast and said to her, I don't believe in cultural appropriation. I think that yoga teachers in the West are better than yoga teachers in the East. Oh, God. Deepak Chopra. Here's how you can live a successful, happy, healthy life. Repeat these affirmations and sleep a lot. I think we're going to have to have a whole nother episode on him. (laughs) But what struck me is listening to those two conversations back to back. One, you could hear Yoga Girl actually feeling uncomfortable, which is a good place to live in for a moment as you're working through these issues, as you're feeling called out, as you're feeling defensive, but still having the conversation. And then right after I listened to the Deepak Chopra conversation and he was absolving her of any responsibility and it made her feel relieved. But guess what? This work is heavy. It carries a weight on your shoulders. And it's what most people of color feel every single day, walking into a room where they're not of the majority, where they're having to shoulder off these comments that make them feel uncomfortable, that are culturally insensitive. 
So we got into this podcast to talk about our personal stories. And Thajal has a really great personal story. Well, great or terrible, you decide. In the fall last year, I decided to take an advanced mentorship training at a studio that I enjoy practicing at. And I respect and admire one of the main lead teachers of this mentorship. It also fit my schedule, which is pretty important as a yoga teacher. I didn't have to move things around. And it felt like I was helping to fill my cup, looking for a little bit more in terms of guided practice and um, refinement of my skill set. So the cohort or the group of other teachers that I were with involved one other Asian woman and eight white women. And six weeks into this eight-week training, after all those hours had been logged being with these people, I realized some of my colleagues and one of the lead teachers, the one that I admired and respected, didn't know how to say or spell my name. Now, this is particularly weird because you were on a text group with these people, no? Yeah, which means there was written proof and evidence in emails and in texts. I actually um, realized this was happening because of a misspelling of my name in the text conversation and a lack of hearing it. I was able to refer back to that text conversation. I had mentioned my name four times and two as introductions to who I am. That's so, great that you proactively introduced yourself on those chains because most people wouldn't even do that. Yeah, I just knew better at this time. And I kept seeing like uh, this flippant attitude towards actually getting to know each other rather than asking for homework or asking for tips on how to get better on their own skills. So you realize these people didn't know your name, but you didn't confront them right away, right? There was like a tipping point moment. Yeah, there were a couple things. One was the group text message where the name was misspelled a couple times and the same question kept coming up. Sorry, who is this again? Uh, that was with my colleagues in the training with me. And then with one of the teachers, I attended her classes as an assistant to practice hands-on adjustments. And the teacher didn't introduce me by name twice. So two weeks in a row. But she had been introducing other teachers. So this is like in contrast to what was already happening. Yeah. I mean, usually not an issue. That's not really a big deal. But I practiced in two of her other classes. And in those same two weeks, she introduces that assistant by name. Now, this is like one of those microaggressions that we talk about because, you know, she's not introducing you. It doesn't seem like necessarily a big deal, but that means that all the students in those classes don't know who you are. So if they want to look you up on the schedule when you start teaching and come to your classes, they don't remember. They're not going to remember you. Yeah. Jaisal, you actually have a great email uh, that you sent out in your newsletter after I told you this story where you recapped it to share those opinions. And I think we should link it in our show notes. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. So this started bothering me six weeks in, and I was at the near the finish line, guys. Like, I was going to get this certification, you know, that paper certificate that says you're an amazing yoga teacher and we care. Uh, so I could have just let that slide, obviously. That would be an easy way to go about it, but really shut down my feelings around it. And also, it shuts down your opportunity in the future, right? Again, like we said, people are not going to know your name. And part of the reason you do a training is to network and to meet more students as well as colleagues. Exactly. But sometimes the emotional toil and labor of addressing people and telling them what's affecting you and how you feel about things is just a lot of work. And there carries a physical stress, it carries emotional stress to that. And I knew all that was coming because I was starting to feel it in my body. So how did you go about it? So a friend in town 
who I really, really value her friendship and feedback, actually edited the text message that I wanted to send to my colleagues. And I thought it was a beautiful text message. It included the article that you just mentioned that's linked in the show notes. And then after I sent that text, I emailed and the recap and then spoke to the lead teacher about this. So she had an FYI to keep her in the loop. And we started to have a conversation. She responded, immediately responded, I should say, by explaining and telling me that it happens to her all the time. People mess up her name. Let's so she just say spiritually bypassed the situation. Yeah. How can you immediately diffuse and deflect how another person feels about it by telling them it happens to you all the time and not really caring that they're a unique individual and they have a very different story? So this woman, let's just call her Christina, was saying, oh, people make up my name uh, in all different variations all the time. They spell it in totally different ways. They even call me Karina. Whatever. I'm just using an example. And I sat there listening, no longer being able to explain how I felt, no longer feeling seen or heard because this woman wanted to tell me that it's okay because it's not a problem. Okay. And just like for context, I know lots of people out there have way more complicated names than Thajal and I feel way worse than for them. But Thajal's name is like two syllables, guys, and it's not that hard to pronounce to begin with. Thajal, that's it. Yeah, it's actually more complex than we like to consider. A name is part of your identity. It's part of who you are. And someone's respect of your name actually shows how much they care. And that's just how I feel about it. And maybe this is something that a lot of people don't consider because Sarah is such an easy name to remember. Well, I've been told on multiple occasions that my name is misspelled. Because it doesn't sound like the way it looks. So in they're telling head. you your own name is misspelled, even though it comes from a different language. Yeah, basically, they're saying, I'm not going to learn how to say uh, consonants and sounds in your language to get your name properly. And that boils down to, I'll just call you whatever I want. And that's unacceptable. I no longer allow that. That same conversation with the lead teacher. One example she used to try and make me feel better about it just was terrible. And I really want to share this with you guys so you don't ever effing do this to anybody. She said to me, well, your name is kind of like Sanskrit. And that's a really hard language for a lot of people. So that, that, that. At that moment, I was like, this conversation needs to stop. We're not getting anywhere. You're not listening to me. I'm coming to you with a concern. I'm going to go change my clothes. And I thought about that comment. My name is not like an old ancient language that is used only in religious practices and now oftentimes in yoga classes. Wait, wait, wait. So this is happening in a yoga studio, which is more effed up because uh, aren't all these teachers using Sanskrit words all the time to describe the poses? Yes. And this particular teacher took the time to learn Sanskrit names. I like that about her. So my response to every single comment she kept telling me was that, listen, I'm bringing this up to you because I'm six weeks in. I feel friendly with these people. I feel like I want to join this community. And this is a way for me to feel more comfortable. This is a yoga and mindfulness community. Where's the mindfulness? I repeated that over and over. The mindful communities I want to join will care will respect what I have to say. And I want us to get there together. And eventually she said, look, Dejal, what do you want me to do? Okay, 
I said, I wanted to inform you. This isn't really an actionable item for you unless you feel called to do something. So the next few days included another teacher and teacher trainee calling me by a different Indian girl's name. So not even Thajal, not even something remotely close to Thajal, right? Nope, just a different Indian girl's name. And one awkward success story happened. Wait, what was the name? What did they call you? I can't remember. Like Divya or something? Oh, I wish I knew, but I don't. I feel bad for that girl, too, because she's clearly a part of that community, giving them a lot of dollars to train with them. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that she matters. Right, because you're just two Indian girls, so it doesn't matter which name they call you by. Uh, There was some light at the end of this tunnel because the one teacher, remember I told you about one of the mentors I respected and admired who didn't actually use my name while I was assisting? Her and I had an awkward success story where uh, I, I relayed this whole conversation with her about the other teacher. And I said, look, this really affects me. And of course, she tried to diffuse and deflect the situation, make it no big deal. She told me that my gift might be to explain my name to people and sound it out and have them recite it back to me every time I meet someone. And I said, no, my gift is not to do that much work every time I meet someone. I think my gift is having a conversation with you because you're in a position where you can help make this community more mindful. And eventually she stopped talking. She looked me in the eyes. She might have held my hand and said, I'm really sorry this happened to you. And I think we can all do better. Yeah, and so that was a really nice, happy ending. But unfortunately, the tried and true strategy of most people, and as you saw in the story, uh, the lead teacher, is of not listening, of defending yourself, and talking about yourself when someone comes to you with a concern. So those are exactly the things that the lead teacher did that we see over and over again. Yeah, and in that scenario, even though I communicated to everyone my concerns and actually had the one success from it, it still doesn't make me feel welcome in that space. Or that the community is one of mindfulness and inclusivity, which is the kicker. A yoga space that cannot walk the talk. I mean, unfortunately, that's so common. And we had mentioned this term, spiritual bypassing, before. And for those of you following us on Instagram, at Yoga is Dead Podcast, uh, you'll you'll see we posted something about love and light. Yeah, right, because we hear this all the time. We mentioned it earlier in the episode that... People use these terms to just shut us down and to maintain the status quo because the status quo benefits them, frankly. Well, Camille Williams writes this great quote that I want to read to you that has to do with spiritual bypassing. She writes, racism and spiritual bypassing are harmful in and of themselves, and their combination compounds the harm. Add gaslighting and you've got an exponentially toxic bro. If you don't know what gaslighting is, It's a psychological manipulation that seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or members of a targeted group, making them question their own memory, perception, or sanity. It's basically when you're being told you're crazy and that you're wrong all the time, when your feelings are quite valid and, you know, when you do some more research or you find other people out there that you connect with, you realize you weren't crazy. Those people were gaslighting you. We definitely want to hear from you if you feel like this resonates if you've been affected like this in any other way. And a lot of people say their studio or their team appreciates and welcomes diversity, but how's that possible when the majority of your staff and students are white? How are you living a diverse experience? The fact is in order to be inclusive, you have to do the work to educate yourself and others. That means making double the effort, 
sending special invites out to communities of color that you wish were there, that you want to represent in your studio, and asking for their opinion and help. And we're going to have more tips at the end of our episode on how to be a great ally. So make sure you check that out. And we'll also be posting that on our social media. We can't express this enough, but it takes more than to just say it or post it on social or your website. You have to live it. Sound like something else we care about living? Yoga. (laughs) Yoga. It's the same with yoga. You have to live it. You can't just read about it and talk about it. So how do we think we got to this place, this place where we lack diversity, a listening ear, and an open mind, where the stereotype of a yogi is no longer an Indian person of any kind or a person sitting still in meditation, but of an extremely thin white woman wearing Lululemon, mala beads around her wrist, and posing in some ridiculous, almost dangerously flexible pose? Instagram? I mean, not really, but also really. Yeah, I I might agree with you there a little bit. Uh, I know that's the easy way out, but it kind of is true. In preparing for this podcast, I did a lot of research for this episode. And personally, I think that the stereotype goes way, way back to Indra Devi. Well, a lot of people think Krishnamacharya gave her this name, but actually she came up with this name herself. A stage name? Yeah, because she was an actress and I think a Russian ballet dancer. Yep. Well, funny enough, when we were preparing for this podcast, um, Susanna Barkataki, who we love, reposted a post from Yoga Glow. So Yoga Glow posted this post about Indra Devi and how amazing she is and how she's a trailblazer. And, and was- we understand that this post was not a standalone post to just highlight Indra Devi. It was a post for Women's... Uh, International Women's Day. International Women's Day and March is Women's History Month. And so they maybe had done a series of posts to profile feminist and female leaders in the yoga world. Yes. And Susanna very sweetly and eloquently pointed out that Indra Devi calling her this trailblazer that did, you know, all these amazing things is kind of an over-exaggeration and diminishes the contribution of South Asian women to yoga. She She uses the term uh, centering on whiteness. Which is exactly what happened. It's centering on whiteness to eliminate other voices and POC voices and South Asian voices, or also known as Desi voices of the South Asian diaspora. What else was really interesting about this post are the comments, of course. People come to Instagram sometimes to have conversations, but it's how you talk that actually sparks more conversation or more heat. And if you go to the comments on this post, um, it actually was a couple weeks ago, so sometime in March, the well-meaning white woman that commented on Susanna's post chastised her for not giving context to Yoga Glow's whole article, then used the word should, telling Susanna what she should be doing about her own post, and then backed it up, doubled down with a second conversation using the word should again. Also saying the words, I'm not here to fight. So we made a really great comment. Thanks, Jaisal, for writing that. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that comment? Yeah, well, she said, I'm not here to fight with anybody. And it's like, you hear, you see this on Instagram, on social media all the time, where 
this woman came to Susanna's post. She wasn't on the Yoga Glow site. She was on Susanna's reposting. I'm not here to fight, but I'm just going to tell you why you're wrong about your thoughts on this topic. And so I wrote back basically saying, well, you are here to fight because you came here. Like, this is your choice, your action. You could have very well have posted this on your own page, but you decided to stay anonymous on your own page. You don't have a single picture of yourself. You don't identify your own name. So you'd rather troll somebody else's page than to make a stand for yourself and maybe even say like how amazing you thought the Yoga Glow post was. And not to mention Yoga Glow, giant company, they don't need you to defend them. So well-meaning white person, we don't need your comments. Thank you very much. Also a white person who said in her comments, and this is something people do a lot. They say, I'm not talking about diversity right now. I am talking about lifting up a woman's voice over a pa- in a patriarchal society. Which goes right back to that thing that we talked about. Feminism has to be intersectional. You cannot talk about elevating women's voices without talking about marginalized women's voices, marginalized people's voices and how it relates. There's no feminism without intersectionality. We saw this come up so much in the last five years, especially in the Women's March. So we're going to need to talk about it in the yoga world now. Yeah. So while that was like, you know, nice and all she wanted to highlight a woman or Yoga Glow wanted to highlight a woman, the, at the end of the day, it was an offensive post that basically credited Indra Devi for bringing yoga to women. Indra Devi is not the first woman to do yoga. I met this woman in the West and her family, she's Indian, her family has practiced Kashmir Shaivism. And as far back as she knows, it's come from the female line in her family. It's just to disprove that this idea that things were born in the West and given to us from the West. So Indra Devi ends up transforming her own identity, changing her name and wearing saris to seem more authentic. Uh, And originally she came to Bombay to act, I believe. And then Bollywood. Everybody know a good (laughs) Bollywood movie. And then she used her privileged position to force Krishnamacharya to teach her and to teach uh, to let her teach in the U.S. as well. So she got the king of the area to basically use his power, her connection with the king, basically. And then she, like, asked the king to force Krishnamacharya to teach her. So that was a great, you know, uh, example of Yeah, she goes back to her elite privilege. life. Exactly, white privilege. She goes back to her elite life and sells yoga as self-help and fitness. Well, first she does it in China. <laughs> <laughs> and then she go- moves to the U.S. And then starts... So she tested the market. And starts teaching the Hollywood crowd. She plays into the stereotype that women need fixing and must please their husbands. She, there's many quotes on that. So if you don't believe us, go Google it. And instead of giving them yoga that is supposed to break down the ego, she gives them yoga fixated on the ego, on growing status and stature of self. And of course, the body. She was literally the OG Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, I mean, if you guys don't know this, this is kind of hilariously entertaining and sad at the same time. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow recently credited herself for bringing yoga to the West. So, you know, we have this great post of Yoga Glow saying Indra Devi brought yoga to the West and Gwyneth Paltrow made this comment. It was a quote from a December 2018 Wall Street Journal article where she says directly, forgive me if this comes out wrong. But when I went to do a yoga class in L.A. recently and the 22-year-old girl behind the counter was like, have you ever done yoga before? 
I literally turned to my friend and I was like, you have this job because I've done yoga before. Oh, mic drop. <laughs> Eye roll. Um, and if, for those of you who don't know, she definitely, there was a lot of people doing yoga before Gwyneth Paltrow. To name a few yogis, there, Swami Vivekananda had brought yoga to the West. Paramhansa had brought yoga to the West. Um, even other white people like Pierre Bernard had brought yoga to the West and before in the Devi, for that matter. It's frustrating, to say the least. We talk about erasing lineage or we feel that lineage is being erased. And then even within the Desi community, the woman I mentioned on the West Coast feels that her lineages are growing extinct because of the ones that we've decided to buy into. The Iyengar lineage, the Krishnamacharya lineage, uh, the Hatha Yoga uh, Shivananda lineage. Part of why we're here, where we are now, also has to do with big business and advertising. I mean, we poke fun at women wearing Lululemon and other expensive athleisure brands, but these brands and their stories have a very real influence in the industry ideal. Yeah, so most of these companies, whether you know it or not, are run by men who are profiting off of this like white women culture. And whether you know it or not, most white women are culturally trained to have a lot of insecurities. And if you don't, it's almost like you're full of yourself. We're going to link an uh, article in the, from the Huffington Post called Murder at Lululemon, Yoga's Heart of Darkness. This article is fire. One thing I wanted to highlight is what Jaisal just pointed out to me, the name Lululemon. Can you talk about that name? Oh, yeah. So it's a racist name. The person who started Lululemon, the founder, he picked a name that had a lot of L's in it because... He thought it was funny that Japanese people couldn't really pronounce the vowel of the consonant L. That was a dick move. And he also is quoted as saying, well, at least poor people in China can have something to work on now in terms of making their clothes. Oh, God. So Lululemon ambassadors, it's time to look under the mat and check out the monsters living there. Yep. So it's not a problem in and of itself that these companies are run by men. But they're run by really, really terrible men. <laughs> and if you don't know anything about the athleisure or retail industry, for, the, for that matter, uh, let me clue you in a little bit. The, a lot of the people, you might be wondering, like, why don't athleisure brands make clothes that fit the average American woman? So the average American woman right now in this country is size 16. And there are lots of brands like Lululemon, like uh, sweaty Betty, I believe, like that don't make above a certain size. They definitely don't make a size 16. And you might th be thinking, well, isn't that bad for business? Um, yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. The thing is, these people don't care because all they care about is exploiting women's insecurities to keep the patriarchal system going. And the people on the board, you would think like, okay, well, the board of directors, even if the CEO or the designer doesn't care, maybe the designer comes from this like fashion background and just wants to make quote unquote beautiful clothes that fit under this like couture ideal. You might think the board of directors cares. Well, actually, a lot of these board of directors also come from that same background. They don't have a lot of business sense necessarily. And so, again, they just want to uphold the status quo, which is oppressive to women. And culturally biased towards white women. If you're maintaining status quo, you're looking at precedent and research. Okay, If your research has majority white women and their shopping trends 
their cultural habits, their eating and fitness and active habits, then you're not looking at the growing market of people of color, women of color, and what they're interested in in the wellness world. And you know what? Big tip, businesses, you're missing out on market share. I mean, the smart businesses are actually expanding their size rangings. You'll notice like even big companies like J. Crew recently expanded their sizing because they realized like they weren't doing well financially and they're a mass market brand. So yeah, they, they Nike better make... just launched a yoga line and they got triple XL. Yeah, because they're again, mass market brand. If you're a mass market brand, you better make clothes for the masses. Also, if you're a brand that promotes pro athletes, they are not your size four individuals. So you should actually be highlighting who's making you money for your brand. Yep. Anyway, so these brands are also calling the shots by providing opportunities where there are a few. So in the yoga space, like there's always this idea of scarcity. There's not that many opportunities. And so when brands offer things like ambassadorships, they're setting the standard for what a yogi should look like. And most of these companies, again, are hiring thin, able-bodied, hyper-flexible women. And then this is who they're showcasing on their advertising as well. So I think this image of who we get as the yoga teacher this day, th these days in this day and age is a combination of people like Inter Devi, people like Gwyneth Paltrow, and big brands basically dictating who the market thinks should be a yoga teacher. On the advertising piece, we've got online publications and print journals that are also giving us ideals of what yoga should look like and not including much diversity. So in all of this, it's the big one that we haven't talked about, yoga journal. Oh, my God. Yep. How many people listening have canceled their subscription? Or how many people listening have no idea that yoga journal is a big part of whitewashing yoga? Talk about erasing South Asian roots. Talk about diminishing diversity and POC while also giving the speech that you want to highlight diversity and POC. Maybe you know Jessamine Stanley. Jessamine Stanley talks about body positivity, accessibility in yoga, and doing whatever the F you want while practicing your yoga. And Yoga Journal decided to feature her on a cover, which sadly was a big accomplishment. Should it be a big deal that a black, queer, femme, body positive woman is on the cover of a Yoga Journal magazine? Uh, no, but is it? Yes, because we are literally in the desert trying to find any oasis of more people of color and representation. But what they ended up doing was having a magazine with her on the cover and also having another cover. They split the cover because they couldn't just feature her. So did the one cover have two, two images or did they publish a Jessamine Stanley cover and then the founder of Yoga Works on the other cover? Yes and yes, they did all of those things. So you might have gotten excited learning about Jessamine Stanley being on your yoga journal cover, but then when you went to the mail, you looked at it and it wasn't her or she was sharing it with another person. Both women have a lot of accomplishments in the yoga world in the West, but was there a need to do that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you want to take a risk as a media company, which isn't really a risk, it's the right move, and highlight and uplift a person of color on your cover that does yoga and does it unabashedly and unapologetically, there's no need to buffer with another cover. 
And they heard it. They got a mouthful from social media and they responded. And you know what? They still lost a lot of readership. They're still working hard to do better. They might say they showcase diversity, but we've yet to see it. And I mean, this is not the first time they're being criticized for whitewashing. Uh, Back in 2008, the Hindu American Foundation launched a Take Back Yoga campaign. And in it, they wrote a letter to Yoga Journal asking them why they don't use words like Hindu or Upanishads or Gita or ancient yoga and like rarely ever refer back to like any of those types of original texts. And their response was because it carries too much baggage. I mean, whether or not you agree with the Hindu American Foundation, that's like a shitty reason to basically say, well, we're whitewashing this because we don't want to deal with the baggage that comes with religion. Meanwhile, ignoring the fact that tons of yoga teachers are bringing their own religious baggage to the practice. Just because you don't believe in the Judeo-Christian mythology anymore doesn't mean that it's completely wiped from who you are as a person and what you bring to this practice. So there's a lot of baggage there, whether you like it or not. And funny incident that happened in the taxi ride over to this recording studio, uh, Dejal was telling me about a phrase her boyfriend uses, right? Mm-hmm. What, what was the phrase that he uses? Sometimes when he's really hot and sweaty, he says, I'm sweating like a hooker in church. Right. And so I made a comment like, oh, Catholic background. And she was telling me, well, he's not religious. And I'm like, oh, but the upbringing is still there. So take it back to Yoga Journal. I mean, for those of you who are going to do your own research, seriously, scroll their Instagram. I, I think I've called it out on my Instagram a few times where if you scroll down, there's like hardly a single person that isn't white and thin. And I know they've been trying to do better lately, but really go back in the weeds because for so long, it's all been about white yoga. I think a way to do better is to keep this conversation going. There was a statistic I heard that said you only need 3% of a population to start talking about something for it to change the conversation. So please do not just shut up and yoga. Speak up and yoga. And that was a funny little callback because there's another online magazine out there called Shut Up and Yoga, which actually, I have to say, I love the work that they're doing in general, especially when it comes to science back movement. I'm really into it. Yeah. And they have a nice sarcastic voice and a pithy bent to some yeah, of their Yeah. And posts. I'm sure the ladies are super lovely, but they recently put out a list of 19 yoga teachers to watch in 2019 and all but one were white. And so they received a lot of criticism in their comments when they started posting it on Instagram. And how did they react, Angel? Defensively, they actually responded and said, oh, if this is a problem for you, why don't you do the work and create a list? And so one of our allies, Feral and True, that's her Instagram handle, decided to do the work and so, recruited Jaisal yeah. in, this, in this process. So you might have noticed some people getting nominated for a different type of list. Yeah, so we're putting together a list of specifically women for this list. Um, and in future, maybe we'll do one that includes men, but specifically women of color. Uh, keep an eye out on that. And uh, it'll be on my Instagram if you guys follow me. It's Yoga Wallow with two L's. So we've talked a lot about the negative stuff and the problems, but we want to end this episode on a positive note because we know a lot of you out there who are listening really want to do better. We know that you're interested in being a better ally to women of color, to people of color, and especially in the yoga world where it's all about mindfulness. So what about the white women who are trying hard to be on our side? What can they do and what mistakes can they avoid? Well, let's start with like some general rules that anybody can do. 
And the first one is not to speak on behalf of people. So this happens a lot. We see always like, well, I'm just coming to the defense of or somebody trying to defend a whole group that they don't necessarily belong to. And it's it's a nice intention. But at the end of the day, you're still maintaining your power by speaking for somebody. So if you're going to if you're going to speak up, pass the mic on to somebody from the group that you're talking about. So if you're talking about black yogis or Indian yogis or whoever it is you're defending, invite those people into the conversation. Yeah, you said it. It's a nice intention. But what is the impact of what you're doing? You are silencing other people. Do not continue to take away POC voices. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like you have to realize as much as you might have good intentions, your impact is the thing that matters. When you're addressing inclusivity, have people of color in the organization, have people of color in the conversations. That simple. The other really big general tip for everybody, I think all of us, we can take away is if we're being criticized in a way that we don't like or that we disagree with, we need to take a pause in the conversation. Sit with it for several days. Sit with the discomfort. Sit with the feeling of disagreement and If you're caught in a moment where somebody's confronting you in the moment, it's a perfectly acceptable response to say, I hear you. I need a moment to collect my thoughts on this. Let me get back to you in a couple of days. That's a completely acceptable response. In the situation where Thajel was talking about her name, it would have been completely fine if that lead teacher, instead of trying to defend her position or making it about her name, had just said, you know, I don't know how to process this right now. Let me think about it. And then let's schedule a time to talk later. And I value what you're saying. So I want you to feel heard. It's not that hard, guys. Don't immediately get defensive and react. Don't immediately try to calm the waters. It's okay if things get a little choppy. Conflict is okay. And we can have the conversations. Agreeing to disagree is actually doing the yoga. Right. And another great tip is is something that should be kind of go without saying in the yoga world, which is to get inquisitive. Ask more questions. Ask questions. If you don't understand or you don't agree, instead of taking a stand, you can say, well, why do you feel that way? Speak with humility. Don't worry so much about sounding or looking like an ass or someone who doesn't know things because we are all students. And don't worry about being right. It's not about being right. Because if you're right, that means someone else is wrong and everybody loses in that situation. Going back to intent versus impact, don't say you had good intentions as a way to defend yourself. That's the defense of psychopaths and narcissists. Good for you that you had good intentions, but it doesn't really matter if your good intentions caused real harm and had a negative impact on others. Know that your emotional attachment fuels your response. The, remote, the moment you recognize you're emotional about the issue or the conversation, pause. Take a breath. And then either start up the conversation again or reschedule. Listen and appreciate and apologize for the unintended impact. And like we mentioned in this episode, white women tend to be defensive and try to back themselves when hearing any feedback or personal impact from a person of color. This has been true for us, and we've heard from many of you that it's been true for you. Share your stories with us if you're a person of color. We'd love to hear from you. So going further into the weeds, what does it mean to be an ally if you're a white studio and yoga business owner? Hire more people of color, period. Make sure they're on your schedule, in your trainings, in your workshops, at the front desk, in all facets of your business. If you can't find people of color, if you think, oh, it's just not who lives here, 
They are out there, and we are happy to give you some resources. Contact us at yogaisdeadpodcast at gmail.com. We're happy to do the legwork for you. And then invite those POC to do special workshops and give talks on their experience in the industry or their point of view when teaching yoga, especially topics like philosophy, mantra, Sanskrit, gods, goddesses, and other Hindu aspects of yoga. Make sure you have Desi referrals for your trainings. And what do I mean by Desi, Tejal? Like we mentioned earlier, those of the South Asian diaspora, people of the of the countries traditionally Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, but it could include more within that South Asian region. Nepal, Bhutan, all of those. Uh, so basically, if you have a white person who is training students, um, make sure you just have, at least in your resources, listed maybe in the back of your uh, pamphlet or whatever you're giving, the resources you're giving your students, just make sure you have some Desi referrals there so that people can go look up for themselves and see what other people have to say about the topic. And go deeper into breaking the mold. Maybe have it in the front page. Just say, hey, we recognize this training is given by all white people. We're allies, but if you want to do more research and get more feedback, here's a list of POC that we respect and admire and that you can contact. Another thing you can do is give discounts to people of color for your trainings and workshops. Simple. Very simple. That's a nice way to draw some people in. Ask your non-white clientele specifically what you can do to make the space more inclusive and more comfortable for them. It could be as little as changing up your music style. It could be as little as uh, saying hello when people walk in, if that's not your custom. It can also just be emailing the customer, client, whoever, after class and just asking for their feedback, general feedback for them. What did you think? Was this class comfortable? Was it culturally sensitive? I want to add something on that. It's really great to give people an out. I mentioned things like emotional labor and emotional uh, toil and effort. If you're constantly asking your people of color community to do extra work for you, give them an out. Say, if you don't want to respond, if you've got a lot on your plate, I'd love to hear from you, but it's also more than okay for you not to respond right now because recognize that you are asking people to do double the work for you just to make them feel okay in your space. And there's plenty of resources out there already as well. Uh, But it's nice just to ask. You can also use your social media to reach out to more people of color. So I know... Sometimes we think, well, they're not coming to my classes. I don't know where they are. I don't know where to look. But social media is a great place to start looking for people of color to draw into your studio or your business. Yeah. You know how it goes. You follow one person of color that you admire and respect. You're going to get suggestions for 10 more. Use that feature. Provide more mentorship and menteeship options to your teachers of color. Plain and simple. Train the people you want to see in the practices. And allow them to also train other people. They'll draw in those people of color for you. When chanting or playing chants in your studio, a topic we didn't really touch in this podcast, survey the students anonymously. Similar to yes, no adjustment cards about uh, getting physical in your practice. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And like we said earlier, uh, in relation to Thajal's story, Make the effort to introduce your teachers of color by saying their name correctly. That's a nice, easy, low-hanging fruit thing you can do. Again, don't leave it all on the person of color every single time to do that work. You got to pay people fairly. Don't ask that teachers or prospective students routinely work for free. I mean, anybody in this industry is struggling, let alone people of color. And sometimes it's just not financially feasible. So if you're looking to draw people into your studio of a diverse range, not just people of color, LGBTQ, whoever, 
asking them to work for free is a great way to drive them away. So if you are a general yoga teacher and not a business owner, not a studio owner, we have some specific tips for you as well. Well, how to be an ally as a yoga teacher. Just the typical yoga teacher running around trying to get as many classes and exposure as you can and experience as you can. I mean, the first one right off the bat is don't avoid people of color, either students or other teachers, just because you can't pronounce their names. Keep asking. Make an extra effort to get it right. Ask POC for feedback at the end of your classes, especially when it comes to sensitive topics, philosophy, mantra, Sanskrit, gods, goddesses, and other Hindu aspects. I might be repeating myself, but it's important because this conversation isn't brought up enough and we need to keep hearing these suggestions. Go out of your way to find a class filled with all or mostly non-white people and go take that class. As a teacher, be a student in that class. Notice how it feels. This suggestion, I'm basing it off of actually a post from this wonderful lady, Am- Amani Gandhi. Her Instagram handle is at Angry Black Lady. And one of the things she says is, put yourself in a non-white space and notice if it makes you feel uncomfortable, if it makes you scared. Just Does just the thought of it make you uncomfortable? And if so, why? You got to do that deep digging, that deep work. This is the yoga. Ask yourself those questions. Why you don't have more colleagues of color? Ask your bosses. Ask why you don't have more students of color. What can you do to change that? We've already mentioned all the resources. We've given you guys us as resources. So here are some more ideas. You can co-lead workshops and trainings with people of color. Take trainings with people of color and ask them what they do to tailor the space to make it more comfortable to their audience. As a yoga teacher, a white yoga teacher, you've got to be the student first in a space where a person of color is leading the space. Don't be tempted to speak on behalf of POC. Instead, pass the speaking part onto these students and teachers and then back them up. And then another great exercise is to explore where you have privilege. I bring this up because a lot of times we think about privilege as just like one faceted. We think, well, you know, I might be white, but I grew up poor or I didn't have the educational background or whatever it might be. And we stick to that idea, even as we get more and more experience and exposure. There are resources out there to help you explore where you have the privilege if you're not sure. And we'll provide some in the show notes. So, Jaisal, did white women kill yoga? Yes and no. I mean, at the end of the day, white women who exclude, who do all these things, who are are defensive, who act in the ways that we've mentioned, are definitely killing yoga. Did every white woman kill yoga? Of course not. That's a stereotype. And can you, as a white woman, stop killing yoga? Yes, if you continue to do the opposite of what we just talked about and be an ally. So let us know. Did white women kill yoga? Hit us up on our Instagram handle at yogaisdeadpodcast or email us at yogaisdeadpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, please support this work by subscribing and by becoming a patron. Patrons get exclusive member-only content like extra videos, live conversations, Miss Yoga is Dead stickers and things. You can sign up for as little as $2 per month and the benefits build from there. Check out www.patreon.com backslash yoga is dead podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jaisal. And I'm Thadal. And catch us next time on Yoga is Dead.